0: In the late 1990s, a consultant in the burgeoning diversity and equity training industry named Tema Okun put together a short paper titled White Supremacy Culture, although calling it a paper is a bit of a stretch. It's eight pages long and it consists of a series of bullet points listing out what Okun describes as characteristics of white supremacy culture, followed by antidotes to them. If you work in an office that has an even slightly progressive-leaning workforce, you're probably familiar with the bullet points, even if you've never seen the paper. Or if you watch Fox News, which loves to lampoon it, then you know what I'm talking about. The bullet points list some of the characteristics of white supremacy culture, including things like perfectionism, sense of urgency, defensiveness, worship of the written word, individualism, and objectivity. So starting in the late 2000s, the paper began to be circulated widely in progressive spaces. After George Floyd's murder, it was everywhere, and it started to morph into something different, often wielded by employees during performance reviews or when pressed about a deadline, or it was otherwise weaponized in the internal battles that continue to engulf institutions, organizations, or even corporations around the country. Now, it took me a while to fully comprehend the impact of the paper, but trust me, it's been profound. Along the way, I heard from people who had reached out to Tema Oaken pleading with her to clarify the document. In 2021, she did update and clarify it on a new website, though as far as I can tell, nobody in the progressive world has noticed. For the first time, she's agreed to do an interview about the paper and its evolution, and she's doing so, she told me, because she feels a particular responsibility given her role in getting it out into the world. Tema Okan, welcome to Deconstructed.
1: Thanks, I'm very happy to be here.
0: So, really excited to have you on to talk about your paper and the way it's evolved uh, over the last couple of couple of decades, uh, and really evolved in the last uh, couple of years, as it's as it's circulated so widely around uh, pro- progressive spaces, and I think' I'll probably even beyond progressive spaces. and so let's let's start at the beginning. so you you drafted this paper and it's 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 short, and I would encourage people to actually read it uh, because sometimes people hear paper and they think, oh, this is going to be twenty five uh, really dense academic pages with a bunch of footnotes. But no, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty short, digestible piece of work that you make, that you put together in the late 1990s, I 1999. So you can talk a little bit about how the how the how the idea came to you and what were you what you were doing at the time uh, when you produced it.
1: Yeah, I, I'm happy to. And I, the context is really important, and I think gets lost sometimes when people uh, read the paper or use the paper or paper an article. So I. At the time, I was about six years in working with a really beloved teacher and mentor named Kenneth Jones, and he and I were two of the co-founders of a group called Change Work, and we were doing racial equity teaching and training with community-based organizations all across the country, mostly at that time in the, in the Northwest, although I'm from the South. We did, had, have done a lot of work in the Southeast. Um, Kenneth died in 2004. Way too soon. So I, um, I like to call his name and just and just say that. We, so we worked together for twelve years before he died. And at the time we we were when we were teaching, we were teaching about how racism and white supremacy operate, so that people and organizations and communities could understand, have a, a shared language and a shared history and a shared understanding, shared framework for thinking about how to tackle it. And so the the piece on white supremacy culture was part of this larger piece of work around trying to work with people and communities to understand how racism operates so that we'd have some tools to dismantle it. And and what happened was, so it was not actually even drafted in, in the normal kind of way. What happened was that I was living in San Francisco that year. Kenneth and I were doing a lot of work in the Northwest in Portland. and. I had just gone to a meeting, a couple of things. I had just gone to a wonderful workshop by the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And I I refer to them kind of as the grandparents of racial equity training, at least in my generation. They still exist. They still do great work out of New Orleans. And a wonderful trainer named Daniel Buford did an incredible presentation on linguistic racism at the workshop. And I was captivated and listened hard to what he had to say. And I'd also been taking a workshop called The Challenging White Supremacy Workshop with a woman named Sharon Martinez. So these two influences and my work with Kenneth, all three things were were navigating my mind and body. And I went to some kind of meeting, and I don't remember any details of the meeting, but I went to a meeting, and it was a very frustrating and horrible meeting. And I came home, and I sat in front of the computer, and the article literally came through me onto the computer. It was not researched. It was not, I didn't sit down and, and deliberate, it just came through me. And I've never had that experience with my writing before or since. And so I wrote it down and I, sh- I shared it with uh, Sharon and Daniel. Uh, Daniel felt that um, he wanted credit, which I was happy to give him for some of the pieces that, that, uh, that I talked about. So I, f- I give him credit and Sharon said to me that she felt I couldn't offer characteristics of white supremacy culture without offering anecdotes. So she's the reason why there are anecdotes in the piece. And then it's been shared with lots of people since. So at this point, in the revised edition, I don't actually feel it's it's mine in the traditional sense of the word. But the the importance is that the the we, at that time this was before the internet, or as I like to joke, before Al Gore invented the internet. And so we had workbooks, we had paper workbooks, and it was uh, it was part of a much larger workbook. And someone somewhere along the line, once the internet became more active, just took the workbook and posted pieces of it on the internet
0: so you hadn't even posted it
1: no i never posted it i never once posted it i never ever expected it to be used certainly out of context of the whole piece so then it just started circulating and um it kind of started to have a life of its own and then when george floyd was murdered it really started to have a life of its own and started having a whole lot of use and i had been thinking for a long time that it needed to be updated and revised which it, it it very badly did need need. And so I spent about a year working on revising it. And that's where the website came from. So the website is a much more nuanced um, version of the article. It introduces issues of class. It talks about Christian hegemony and capitalism. And so I, I I really I really urge people, if they're interested, to go and look at the website. It's very dense. I don't expect people to read it all at once and and or to download the article
0: how did you realize that it was really increasing in circulation
1: well again once the internet and email and you know all the social media became active people started um, letting me know they either tell me they were using it or um, they would tell me they had they'd gone to a workshop where it had been used
0: and so like 20 2010s it starts moving around in circles
1: yeah yeah, yeah. I I don't even really know how to say this but, um, tactfully or or well I'm not I wasn't looking to promote it I don't you know I'm someone I like to just sort of quietly do my work and Mm -hmm. be about doing my work and and I was happy if it was useful to people and I was happy to hear that people were using it until it became clear to me that quite a few people were misusing it Mm -hmm. and so now that's something that I've realized I have to take some responsibility for and start to talk about so I'm beginning to think about ways to do that
0: and, and how did you, how did you realize that? And was that post George Floyd, people started reaching out?
1: Yeah. Well, I, ha- I have, well, I have two stories, so maybe that will help. So one, the one is about it's, it's it, in the early days, uh, a colleague of mine and I were doing a workshop for the National Lawyers Guild, which is a, a progressive lawyers association. And we worked with the characteristics. We had them in small groups and we, sort of listed them out and asked them to talk in their groups about how those characteristics show up in their work and one person uh, at the uh, when we asked them to report back one person stood up and said well you know basically these characteristics are what the law profession requires and everyone in the room both laughed and groaned and so in that way it, it sort of reinforced or reinforced the idea that this is that this is our, is the water we swim in this is the these characteristics do reflect uh, some kind of reality for a lot of people and I'm not claiming it's the only reality and I'm not claiming anything beyond that some that many many people resonate with it in terms of oh yeah now this helps me make sense of of what I'm what I'm dealing with so that's one story and then then about two two years ago two or three years ago I went to went on a retreat and I was paired with someone who's a white leader of a large organization and um, we had known each other but we didn't know each other well and we get in the room and we put our bags on the bed and she turns to me and she says, well, I've just been kicked out of my organization and your article was used to do it. Hmm. And I, um, I, you know, gave How, a how'd, that,
0: what, how'd that feel? Well, I, I
1: gave a wry smile and I said, I'm sure it hmm. was. And, um, and then, we,
0: oh, cause this wasn't the first time you'd no, heard that no. it was being weaponized yeah. in that way.
1: And then, then we started to talk about it. And because she is a very emotionally mature person, um, she was working through the pain of that. She understood that it wasn't my tool that was the problem, that it was the use of, of the tool that was the problem. And to her great, great credit, she also used it as an opportunity to look at herself and go, oh, now let me look at what's true about, about what's been happening. Let me look at what's true about what people are saying about my leadership and started to um, you know, make some shifts. So I think that's yeah, you know, and then I just hear all kinds of stories. I've heard a story about a young white man here locally who went after his um, a, a black woman who was his supervisor with the list. I've heard about white young white people going after both white white bosses and people of color bosses. I've heard about about um, black indigenous and people of color employees going against white bosses. So it's been used, it's been misused by lots and lots of people. It's been well used by lots and lots of people.
0: So let's go through a little bit of it so people can think about how, from your perspective, it ought to be used and ought, ought not to be used. And I think the first characteristic that you start with, correct me if I'm wrong, is perfectionism. How, how have you seen perfectionism be kind of misused and weaponized uh, and kind of, you know, you'll see that you'll see the right wing kind of lampoon some of these and say, you know, de- deadlines, perfectionism, urgency are all white supremacy characteristics. What So what 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 do you mean and what what should people kind of take from this and we could we could just start with perfectionism which you, you say perfectionism one right way paternalism objectivity
1: yeah they, well, they all kind of uh, link together so I don't think anybody uses one characteristic the, the way it's misused is that it it people turn it into a checklist to assess or target someone and say look you're exhibiting these characteristics and that means you're you're colluding with white supremacy culture, and you're, you're a bad person, you're a terrible person, um, and, or to accuse them of being you know, a tool of white supremacy culture. Or, um, or they'll misuse and, and generally, what I find is that when people misuse it in that way, they haven't actually read it, or they certainly haven't read the website. Because there's no way you could read the website and come away feeling like it's meant to be used as a checklist in that way. So when I'm talking about perfectionism, I'm talking about I'm not talking about excellence. And I'm not talking about hard work, I'm talking about, and so many people, um, and certainly a lot of uh, white people that I know really resonate with this idea that, um, that, there is this, that that there is this place to land that is perfect. And my, my, and so it makes, it just, it destroys our ability to enjoy the process of whatever it is that we're doing it makes it much more difficult to collaborate with other people if we think there's one way to do it or we have to find the perfect way to do it it begs the question who's deciding what perfect is um it's just it's it's nonsense it's this idea that that there is a i mean we could i could imagine we we could we could we could be looking at a sunset and going oh that's a perfect sunset but the sunset didn't have to effort to be perfect and It's just our appreciation of how beautiful the sunset is and there could be a perfect sunset the next night, but that's different than sort of this, this notion that we have to get something perfectly right without even knowing who, who made up the rules about what, what perfection is. So
0: in your updated version, you contrast it with, with excellence, um, which, and from what I've heard from, you know, people involved in organizations that, I think they would they'll they'll appreciate that because sometimes when you're doing say a performance review and you say you' you your your performance was substandard in XYZ ways say well perfectionism mm-hmm. is a characteristic of white supremacy so yes, you're judging yes. me now yes is a yes. a and so yes. what you're saying yes. is no 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 excellence is still a thing as long as yes. we're cautious about how we how we collectively define it is that is that about right
1: I think that's very right and I, I think it's, it's, I, I aspire to be excellent. And I, I, you know, most of the people I I'm around, I'm fortunate to be around or aspire to be excellent, but usually, and usually we are having conversations about what that even means. Um, and usually we're also having conversations about giving ourselves a lot of grace when we make mistakes because making mistakes is the only way to even aspire to, to being excellent um, or to doing, to doing what we consider a good job because we, learn so much through our mistakes. And I think, um, so yeah, I think that's all of a piece. You made me think about another way. So there's another misuse is the worship of the written word. And I've heard of examples, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, we can jump to that one, yeah. say, oh, you're yeah. making me write down, making me account for myself at my job and write a report of my what I've done and that's worship of the written word. I mean, that's just absurd. That's not what worship of the written word means at all. And again, it just lets me know that people haven't actually read the website or read the article, don't understand what I'm saying and are, but here's the thing. I think if people are trying to get around being responsible for themselves or doing hard work or, or living up to some agreed standard of excellence, if it's not this tool, they'll find another one. You know, I don't, that's my, that's my feeling about it. Yeah.
0: And you and I talked earlier about Maurice Mitchell's, um, article that he wrote recently in The Forge, uh, which people can find. It's called yeah. Building Resilient yeah. Organizations. And he he mentions you in this, and I, and this gets to a, a one of the other kind of categories. He he writes, uh, you know, cer- certain phases uh, and words carry cultural currency and cachet. We often find words like revolutionary employed non-ironically in the service of bourgeois individualistic demands, decontextualized or uncritical use of intellectual material, like the Tema Okun essay on white supremacy culture, has at times served to challenge accountability around metrics and timeliness or the use of written language, as you just mentioned. Yet metrics and timeliness and the ability to communicate in writing are not in and of themselves examples of white supremacy. And in the preceding paragraph he talks about, and this is related to one of yours, he talks about small is all, and you, you have a category that's that's similar. So I want to read this real quickly. He says, for example, using the term intersectionality to, let's say, defend edits to a press statement or, impl- or employing the Audrey Lorde quote, caring for myself is not self-indulgence to give gravitas to a desire to stay home from an action or take off time that you've earned and deserve as a worker. In other words, he's saying, if you need time off, just take the time off. You Don't have to quote, quote don't to quote Audrey Lord to me, uh, or arming yourself with the concept quote small is all from Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy framework outside of its global fractal context to resist taking responsibility for a large scale intervention or growing your community group into a mass organization, which rhymes to me with with your one that says one of the characteristics progress is bigger uh, slash more and quantity over quality. So, how are people misusing that one? This small is all, and more is bigger. What? How? How are you seeing that play out?
1: Well, first of all, I want to say that I love that article that Maurice wrote. Maurice Mitchell wrote. I don't know him, um, and and so I shouldn't be calling him by his first name. And uh, I, I'm a fangirl. I wrote him a thank you on LinkedIn, and he responded, and I was a excited. about it. Um, So, and, and I agree with with everything he's saying. And I, he says there, and I feel like he was. Um, he's saying things that that um, needed to be said and I'm I think it's really great that he said them out loud and so I I think what I want to say about this is that what he's saying and what I what I would wholeheartedly agree with is that all of this is very nuanced and complex so if we're going to talk about and when I'm talking about progress is more and bigger i'm just talking about how sort of inculcated in the way that we think about things in our culture is that to move forward to progress means we have to get bigger we have to we have to we have to grow exponentially we have to and and in some cases may, we we may that may be the right thing to do and in some cases it might be smarter to stay small and mobile and and that it's part of the way in which these cultural norms the the way that they shape our thinking really limit us and and the argument i'm making is they not only limit us they disconnect us from ourselves from each other from spirit if, if we believe in that kind of thing from earth and so so anything in my the way i think about white supremacy culture is is that it just operates to limit our thinking and and, and often to make it fear based to 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 get us a, moving from a fear-based place and when we're in a fear-based place we can't think very creatively or open-heartedly and so um you know if we're if we're feeling like we, we're not doing a we're not doing a good job we're not um, achieving excellence because we're not progressing by getting bigger um, then then we haven't allowed ourselves some room to think creatively about what it is we're actually doing it's just that it's the imposition of these ways of thinking that i think get in our way
0: and I think the characteristic that I see you know, circulate the most and get misused the most and lampooned from the right the most might be urgency. Yet it's also one of the ones that, to me, has the most obvious relevance to the question that we're talking about, if, if you can grapple with it seriously. And what I mean by that is that I've seen in, in plenty of institutions and organizations that I've been a part of, let's say there's an effort underway to diversify the staff, Like they look around and say, wow, this is bad. There's just a whole bunch of white people around here. And and there's something wrong with that. Like we need to do something about that. A job opening comes up and doing the work to try to make sure that the opening gets to all the places so that you get a diverse batch of applicants is hard work. And it's really important that we fill this position really quickly. This is an urgent thing. And so we'll do it next time. You know, we'll, we'll deal with this next time. Meanwhile, the way it seems to be used out in the real world uh, is people saying, "What do you mean that that's due at noon?" This is just more white supremacy culture coming from my from my boss. Uh, is, so, what have what have you heard about this one, and, and what are people getting right and wrong about it?
1: Well, yes, this is a this is a this is a nuanced one for sure. So, I think we are living in very urgent times where, in you know, we're a nation on fire. I've never seen. I've never seen the kind of overt white nationalism in our national politics since I was growing up at the end of Jim Crow here in the South. So, yes, it's a, these times are urgent. What I'm talking about is when a, the in a, in a community or in a, particularly in an organization, when there starts to be a culture of urgency so that that's the default way of being, that everything is urgent. And when everything is urgent, then it's so easy for racism to perpetuate itself. And I think, for example, about uh, a colleague and I were doing a workshop with a, a no, this was another progressive legal group. And, you know, most of the, if not all of the lawyers were white, and most of the staff, um, if not all of the staff were people of color. And we had just spent the morning talking about the ways that decisions were made in the organization and how the people of color in the organization felt like they were excluded from decisions that were affecting their work and um, and that were affecting the effective that were affecting how effective the organization was in the community because in many cases the organization was doing work in the communities where people of color lived, not where the white lawyers lived. And in the middle of this of all of this, there was a phone call about something that had just happened, and I don't even remember what it was. It might have been uh, an arrest of a black activist or or some kind of emergency came up and in that moment while we were at the workshop discussing this very thing all of the lawyers gathered in a circle and started talking over each other trying to figure out what to do Um, the people of color were standing in a circle behind them all of them deeply invested in what was happening but having absolutely no voice and when we as facilitators tried to say can we take a pause and just sit down together and figure out what we're going to do in a way that that meets this Dynamic that we've just been talking about. The answer was no. We don't have time. We can't. We can't possibly do that. We can't have time. We, no, no, no. So in the middle of a workshop meant to help uh, and support them to deal with the the ways in which their culture was perpetuating racism, they were unable to stop. And that that's what I think. I mean by it's it's just that that there's this there's this sense that things are so urgent. We don't. We can't possibly pause um, for anything. So we lose the ability to pause for anything, and people get. Uh, get run over in that situation, and it just keeps things in place.
0: It does seem difficult for people to keep those both of those things in their minds at the time. I'm, I'm just kind of yeah. begging people to understand that yeah. that yeah. like er, these are urgent times. But if you start to see yourself using urgency as a way to avoid thinking about anything else, then you might have made a wrong turn.
1: And I will say, I see that I see it in myself. So another really good use of the of this document is um, as a sort of an internal map, a way of looking at yourself or myself. I use it to look at myself. like how are these characteristics showing up in me? And I the way urgency shows up in me is I feel like I've got've got a deadline, I've got to get this done. It's often very often I'm talking about now that deadlines are that are self-imposed. And what I have found, you know, I'm, I'm quite a bit older now, I finally understood that if I don't, as my friend says, push the river, that if I can allow some spaciousness, in the way that i approach my work or what i'm responsible for often things happen in that spaciousness that i wouldn't have that wouldn't have occurred or wouldn't have been possible if i had pushed forward like i've got to get this done and so i've come to really value the spaciousness because of what can emerge if i can uh, allow the urgent voices inside me to just um, you know take a nap and see what, what might be possible
0: and you also write in in the update uh, more about kind of class and race essentialism or pushing back against kind of race race essentialism which Maurice Mitchell touches on as well uh, did, did you assume a class lens in your in your first draft and not include it for that reason or is it is a class lens something that you've developed developed since then I can read a little bit here you, you write a, a class lens and issues of intersectionality are important to address and a caution against weaponization of the list, this list seems critically important right now. So you included class, you know, right at the very top of your, of your update.
1: Well, I think it's a, that's because, that's just the result of my experience over the last however many years, 23 years since I wrote the first article. And I think these characteristics are characteristics of what I would call middle class, upper middle class, you know, wealthy class whiteness. Um, And again, not people, whiteness. And, and that there are many, because I've been, in relationship with many more white people who are poor or working class, who have pointed out to me that many of these characteristics don't really apply to them, um, or don't apply to their lived experience, that um, I've come to understand that you know white supremacy, and this is a very nuanced idea, so I hope I hope it's all right to share it, but that white supremacy targets white people in some of the same ways that it targets people of color. Not in the same ways, but it targets you know, in order to assimilate into the kind of whiteness that I'm describing in this document, working-class people have to learn to speak, you know, change their language, to learn to assimilate into whiteness in a way that they, um, that, that is, is uh, forces them to leave who they are behind, pieces of who they are behind. And I think that's what whiteness does. And so it certainly does it to people of color, and it, it also does it to working and poor, poor people.
0: I haven't seen the update circulate with the same velocity that that the original did. Have you gotten any feedback on it? Or are you doing this interview kind of to help get it out? Like wh- where is it was published in, like you said, twenty twenty one? But I only discovered it last summer or so, and I think it, yeah.
1: So the original article definitely was circulating a lot more. Uh, so every time anybody so so most mostly what comes across my feed. Is appreciation like I've used your article. Thank you so much. Um, and whenever I get a message like that, I write back and say I hope you're using the new version. So, so the good thing to the good thing I can report is that when you put white supremacy culture in the Google, at least in my Google feed, my website comes up first. So I think gradually, slowly but surely, it is um, it is getting out there more and more. Uh, The original is still circulating. And I do ask whenever I can uh, that people stop using it and start using the new one. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind.
1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: And as somebody who's been involved in kind of the DEI industry before it was even called that, um, what, what's, your, what's your sense of... Its value as it as it evolves, and are you surprised or concerned to see kind of corporate America so thoroughly uh, ad- adopting it in in recent years?
1: Um, no, I'm not concerned. I'm, I, you know, there was a recent article in the New York Times um, talking about how the op- opinion piece saying that claiming that DEI does more harm than good, and I'm working on a response to that now. I my position is that. There are multiple ways for us as a nation, for those of us who care about racial justice, there are multiple ways to work towards it. And the way I do it is one way. And um, the way you do it is another way. And I don't, I think there was a time in my life when I was much younger when I felt I had the right way and I felt people had to do things my way. I don't believe that anymore. And so I don't, I also don't, feel like I have any certainty about how the transformational shifts we need to make as a nation are going to happen. So I, um, I do my work and I celebrate the work that other people do. I, I do, I mean, I do share concern what I, the, the thing I agreed with the author about is that I don't think shame and blame is a good way, is a good way to lead this work. Um, I think shame, I, what I'm saying in my, in my response is that shame and blame are inevitable feelings, particularly for white people. Because once we confront our history, we ha- we're we going to feel shame and we're going to feel blamed. And, and that's just part of it. And that the, the the cleverness of white supremacy and white supremacy culture is that defensiveness against understanding it is built into it. So defensiveness is going to come up. Any DEI practitioner with any kind of experience is going to have to address defensiveness. That's just part of that's part of the work. So there, there, any implication that we can do this work without making white people defensive is just um, uninformed.
0: And I guess what I mean by yeah, I guess what I mean by concerned about corporate America adopting is that you see more and more reports of, first of all, and probably the most obviously concerning would be corporate corporations wielding it against union drives. Yes, yes, like explicitly right, right. and and like you tactically using it in that way. But then second. Oftentimes when they're bringing in DEI consultants, it's because they had a, a real problem in the workplace. Yes. And yeah. the criticism would be this is they're they're just papering over this problem. Look, what do you want from us? We hired these consultants. You know, we gave you a half day. We gave you a day, you know, to talk about your feelings about white supremacy culture. Now now move on. We yeah. don't need any structural reforms. We don't need any regulations. We definitely don't need the EEOC yeah. coming in here and looking around. Yeah. Uh, so just everybody move on. We're good. So that, I guess that's what I mean about uh, if it becomes kind of cover uh, for the thing that it's trying to dismantle.
1: Well, it absolutely does. There's no question about it. And and I think that, again, it's the nature of this culture and how this culture um, is so adaptive and figures out ways to, to, to do this. I, for six years or seven years, I worked at a prestigious university, in something called the Teaching for Equity Fellows Program, and I understood that I was providing cover for the university that was sort of half-heartedly committed to this program. And every year, we didn't know if we would uh, be refunded uh, from a uni- from a private university that has more money than God. And you know, I I I, uh, I understood that that the university could use us when convenient to say, look Look at what we're doing. At the same time in that program, I came in touch with literally hundreds of faculty who were either interested in figuring out how to teach do, do, teach better about race, class, and gender, or do a better job of serving all of the students in their classrooms. And in that experience, um, had, you know, had some of the most, had some very deep and wonderful and graceful and hard and challenging conversations and aha moments. And uh, I think one of the one of the great gifts of that program was that these were all faculty who cared about students and cared about teaching across disciplines and just the power of being in a room with other people who cared about it too. And that's what I mean by saying there's there's change happening at different levels that, that we can't even know or see. And so, you know, looking at the outside, should I have been quote unquote pimping for the university? No, I, I don't want to do that. But and while I was there, I think I was able to, and I'm not taking credit so much as just saying, as a group, as a community, we were able to really um, understand some things, do some things differently, try some things, uh, better serve students, better serve ourselves. So I, I think that we're, we're in the dilemma. We're in this dilemma of um, being in this culture, operating in the constraints of this culture. Another criticism of DEI is that a lot of people hang out at DEI shingle, who have very little experience, um, and it is becoming a DEI industrial complex, you know, with all the problems that 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 brings. But I kind of wonder, what's the alternative? Are we not to address it at all? I mean, if we can't address it right, do we not address it? You know, this is this is 400 years in the making, and and it's one of the reasons I'm so annoyed at the times for giving space to this to this opinion. It's like 400 years in the making, and it's so easy to criticize those of us who are who are doing incredibly challenging work to try and bring light to what this is, you know, how racism and white supremacy operate and how it's, it's impacting all of us and how it's harming all of us and how it's toxic to all of us. So um, I just think I try and, I try and, and take the attitude that, that the the more, more things people are trying, the better, the more of us in, in the, in the fight, the better, Uh, the more, wisdom and ways of doing things, people bring the better. And along the way, yeah, it's going to be messy and people are going to go after each other. And, um, you know, part of part of the reason for for my being here today is just to say to those people who are misusing my work, please stop. Just don't, just don't, you know, it's not, it's not meant to, to be used to target people. That's not what it's meant for. It's meant to bring people together to talk about how we're getting in our own way and what we can do differently. So...
0: One of the other things that you mentioned, uh, in, in the update is that the original version, uh, that, that circulated and because you didn't post it yourself, it, it just kind of started circulating on its own. The original version, uh, had your mentor, Kenneth Jones listed as a, as a co-author, And, and you write, uh, you write here that he later said, no, no, no. I like, I don't, I don't actually want my name on this work. And you guys argued, you said, well, you, you influenced it so much you should be. And he said, no, I don't want to be on there. So you you took him off, um, and so I, I've. I'm sure. I'm curious if you've heard, because I've heard some some complaints from people who said, who they, who are uh, black leaders of organizations who are like, I'm getting hammered by all of these kind of uh, white staffers uh, with this document mm-hmm. written by a white lady, mm-hmm. and allegedly a a black man, but the black man's name isn't actually he wasn't actually an author of it, mm-hmm. and it's killing me here. Mm-hmm. Um, have you yeah. have you heard that? From, yes. from people and what do you, what yes. do you say to them when they when they say that
1: I say I, I say I'm so sorry it's not what it was meant for in any way shape or form and um, I mean people the thing is that people don't come to me to tell me directly they tell somebody who experienced that or heard that tells me so that's why I'm trying to think about um, my the strategy moving forward to make it clear that this is not at all how it's meant to be used and I you know my my uh, one of my Deepest values is transparency. So, with the website, I try to be as transparent as possible about who contributed to it, which is why um, and and how it evolved, so that so that there's no mistake. I was at a I was invited to facilitate a a day long workshop on on the document um, in the northwest in an organization that was mostly young people of color and. One of them didn't know that I was white until I showed up, or she said she didn't find out I was white until two days before. And they were not having it. They didn't they didn't they didn't think I had anything to offer to teach them. And you know, once I understood that, it was like, okay, that's okay. You know, it's like that's where you are, that's how you feel. I don't want to waste your time or mine. And and so, you know, I just I left and we agreed that I would leave. And so, you know, I, I don't I don't take this I don't take this personally. This, this work is meant to support people who want to understand the water that we're swim in, swimming in so that we can get free. And we don't get free. We don't get, we don't get justice alone. It's a collective and collaborative process. And we don't get free and we don't get justice by going after each other. And sometimes we're at our limits. You know, sometimes people, I feel like the misuse of the article comes from a place of just deep yearning for to be seen, to be valued, to be included, to be heard. And so I understand it in that way. And I, I yeah, I, I think we all, you know, so many of, of us, if not all of us, are in, in some kind of deep pain. A lot of us have experienced direct and indirect trauma. Um, so, you know, I don't, I, and everybody generally speaking, there are exceptions, most of them in Congress are doing the very best they can, you know, and, and we do what we're capable of. And I see it. I see racial justice work as a dance. Like if I'm capable of something and you're not, then I'll, I'll show up. If I can't, if I'm at if I'm my limit and I can't show up, then I'll ask you to show up. Um, and if you're at a place where you just can't have me in the room, I'll, I'll leave the room. You know, it's, it's like, I don't, this is not about me. Um, and it's, and it's for me. Both of those things are true. I want to say one other thing about this, mis- the misuse. The other reason I think people, like if people misuse the document because they don't want to be accountable to their boss, you know, so it's this white supremacy culture making me write a report or urgency or whatever. And there seems to be growing complaints that a lot of people in workplaces now don't don't want to be accountable or don't want to be rigorous. And again, when, when something's happened, I try and think about I try and really sit with like, why is that happening? What's the very good reason that's happening? And we're, we're in, we're in such destabilized times and we have so little support or so little role modeling for what it means to, to show up at work and work collaboratively and have each other's backs. And it's, you know, I think individualism is running rampant and authoritarianism is running rampant and, you know, um, having a media presence is running rampant. It's like where our ability to, to rest in collective values is really challenged right now. So um, yeah, I just, I, I don't want people to misuse the article. I try and understand why they are doing so when they do and try and encourage them to, to think about how much more fun and joyful it is to use tools like this as a way to understand who we are and how we can be with each other in what I call fierce love.
0: Yeah, if you look at the misuse of this article, the weaponization of this article as a symptom of a broader disease, what would you suggest people do instead?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I think the the, the one page that people, I would love to direct people's attention to on the website is the racial equity principles page. So it's 10 principles that were collectively uh, derived over a decade of work with colleagues that we have found really work in trying to tackle racism and white supremacy and trying to build racial equity and justice. And so I would I would point people there. It's, it's things like think like an organizer, think collectively, uh, act collectively, use transparency, be transparent, uh, choose love over fear. Um, so I, I think I don't have a prescription. Um, I think that My job at this point in my life, I'm uh, 70 years old, at this point in my life is to remind people that we do this work from a place of great love and that coming from a place of great love is not easy. Um, Sometimes it requires setting boundaries. Sometimes it requires challenging people's ways of being and thinking. Sometimes it requires uh, speaking truths that people don't want to hear. Um, And... There's a big difference in doing those things from a place of love than in doing them from a place of chastisement or fear or one-upmanship. Or so just just to to come back to the the reason we're in this movement for justice is love for each other and ourselves.
0: And when you think back to that evening in 1999 when you returned from that meeting and and put put this down on on paper, uh, are you glad that you did, or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself, you know what, just just turn on sixty minutes. Tonight. <laughs>
1: um, I've never been asked that question before. Uh, I think, in the end, I am glad I did because I, you know, again, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it was mine. I feel like, um, in my language, it was spirit moving through me because it was not, again, something. It was something that came through me onto the, in this case, the computer, not onto the page. But, and and I feel like it's. I have gotten so much. Um, I have had so many people talk about what a transformation it has made possible in their own lives. It's, it's sort of like being being able to see something that helps that helps you make sense of why you're so ill at ease, or why you um, why your the voices in your head are so hateful. Um, you know, it just so I think in the end. Um, because anything I write or anything you write or any any tool that anybody makes can be, you know, a hammer can be used to hammer a nail. It can also be used, to, you know, for violent purposes. So it's it's not. Um, it's part of my job as a community of people to to support us to use the tools that we have well. And I am in the end glad that I was able to offer a tool that I think has some use. And it's not. It's certainly not. It's a small, small, small piece. So many people have written about white supremacy and white supremacy culture both before and after me. There's such a plethora of incredible resources now that this does not in any way need to be or ever should be anything but a small contribution. I guess I just want to reiterate at the end that the misuse of the article for me is it's quite heartbreaking. And I never meant it to be used that way. And if you are listening to this and are using it in that way please please stop um and and come back to the website read the whole website and see see how you can pull from it in a way to support your own development or to make it a collective or collaborative enterprise to understand how to build the culture that you want the culture that we want so that we can all thrive and be in loving community with each other
0: and that website is, the, the address is whitesupremacyculture.info. Uh, for, for people who want to go search it, you can, probably, you can probably just Google it and find it find it quite easily. Uh, Tema Okun, um, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate this.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: That was Tema Oaken, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is the Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon.